Greetings from the humongous. Roads? Well, we're going, we don't need roads. I don't know what the hell's in there. It's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. This is the chopper! I'll have what she's having. Hey, Dr. Jones, no friends for love! Hey, hey, Sal, how come we got the brothers on the wall here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place, you can do what you want to do. You are nothing but unorganized, grabastic pieces of amphibian shit! The society made me what I am. That's bullshit. Yeah, that's simply the way they talk here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word. What did the pajamas look like? I don't know. They were jammies. They had Yodas and shit on them. It's a fine line between stupid and clever. You send one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago. All right, we're back. Film Driven, I'm Andre Shane. I'm Steve Haskin. Steve, we've been in the weeds talking about mainstream Hollywood cinema. Sure. In the last few episodes, and uh, going to do a little departure, right? We're going to leave mainstream Hollywood behind for an in-depth look at independent film of the 1980s. That's and, right. No one's financing this podcast, and uh, that was the situation these filmmakers found themselves in early on. Well, I guess we should talk about what independent cinema is. and Well, there's kind of two definitions of it, which is uh, similar to independent music, where there's like the technical definition of what it means, and then there's like, it almost becomes a genre unto itself. So, you know, in the strictest terms, an independent movie would be a movie that was self-financed, you know, or through like a group of investors that it's not financed through any sort of Hollywood studio Nobody uh, hired the crew. It like very much is a do-it-yourself effort on a part of the filmmakers involved. Exactly. And um, but then you know there's a lot of people we think of as independent cinema that sometimes the term seems to just apply to things that don't seem real mainstreamy. Right. So you know people think that in spirit, Taxi Driver is like an indie film, just in terms of tone. When it's not. Yeah. In fact, it's a studio. But so we're going to discuss some of these very prominent directors that maybe, you know, their first movie was an independent movie. But then quickly, you know, they were, in fact, financed like the Coen brothers or uh, David Lynch or even Sam Raimi. Of course. And that, of course, is the dream of the independent filmmaker. Right. You make a cool indie film with uh, very little budget. Yeah. And then, you know, big Hollywood producer, say uh, Joel Silver or uh, Mel Brooks, perhaps, sees... Your work and it's like, hey, there, there, there's a talent. This kid's got talent. something. Yeah. And uh, why don't we get them to direct our next, uh, our next big Hollywood project? And that's actually what ended up happening. And, and of course, independent cinema, like independent music, kind of rose out of the late seventies, right? The yeah. later half of the seventies, but it's really the eighties where it hit its stride. So I think it's important, you know, we talked about the good and bad aspects of cinema of the 1980s. And I think it's hard to deny that this was a very, very good element of 1980s cinema. The rise of independent filmmakers and um, sort of more mainstreaming of independent films where I remember even in high school watching movies that I don't think most high school students would think about watching even in the 1970s. Sure. But in the mid-80s, it became kind of hip and cool. 
Yeah, it became a, the, it was still a bit of a subculture. It wasn't mainstream, but it was a lot more accessible. And I, I mean, I, I have to imagine the rise of home video really played a part in that. Yeah. That, uh, you know, there are movies that previously were only shown maybe on certain arty film nights at a university, and that would be the only way to see these movies. Exactly. And also, you know, once they came, you know, there was no, there was no home viewing. So if it wasn't, if a theater wasn't booking Eraserhead after 1977, you might never see it again. That might be really tricky. But now, you know, when VHS starts coming in, especially by the mid 80s, they become a lot more prominent. Then, you know, these movies can circulate. You can, people can see things and tell their friends about it. And as you said, it just became a viable subculture. Absolutely. Um, I always used to really like in music, the word alternative. And I actually always found that description really accurate because to me, it wasn't necessarily like how the music was produced or who was funding it. It just almost felt like a side version of the mainstream culture. Like, you know, if like I still like rock music, I just wanted it to be better. <laughs> like that's what, it, but I mean, that's as a kid, how I thought of as alternative music. Like there were still like poppy songs and rocking songs and ballads and all these things that existed on like mainstream radio. I just thought it was like the quality was better. So in some ways that's some of, we think of some of these movies as like, okay, this is the same, it's the same concept of like a mainstream Hollywood movie, but it's, you know, maybe more interesting themes, different types of performances, you're not as, like, railroaded into, like, that Hollywood formula. Very true, very true. You get, like, genuinely individualistic works of art uh, that don't seem to be uh, uh, marketed too much, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, you, there doesn't seem to be a, a board of directors overviewing, like, every scene in a movie, which you a lot of times feel is the case in a lot of Hollywood product, especially as we discussed you know, franchise-type filmmaking, IP-type stuff, and so on and so forth. Yeah. This seems a lot quirkier, a lot more individualistic, and uh, and therefore, in most cases, a lot more interesting. Yeah, I mean, we've talked in previous episodes about our respect for the kind of professionalism and just level of Hollywood storytelling in the 80s, about sure. how there was a, you know, a commitment to entertaining you that could, was often admirable. Right. And that sometimes, you know, in... Some of the Hollywood movies today were like, man, I just wish they, like, even a romantic comedy, if it just had the level of, like, professionalism of an 80s movie, would be a lot better. But in the 80s, you know, there were a lot of filmmakers who were like, yeah, this is, you know, it's entertaining, it's professional, but, like, I don't know, it's not really saying what I want, anything unique about the world. I want to, I have something else. Absolutely, absolutely. And, of course, as we were saying earlier, the... The, the indie film, the, the alternative, as you call it, film of the period, really kind of came to its fore in the late 70s. Who would you say was, like, some of the key filmmakers that came out of that? that well, um, you know, John Cassavetes was a big one. I know he was even before the 70s. Yeah, but, Cassavetes uh, goes back to the 50s. Yeah, but, but then David Lynch is really a key figure of following this trajectory of, you know, David Lynch made Eraserhead right. uh, completely on his own. I mean, <laughs> nobody was investing in Eraserhead. You know, the stories of the making of Eraserhead or that, you know, was very much all hands-on-deck production where actors are helping, you know, brew up the special effects and... And Blew up indeed, yes. Against all odds, Eraserhead got a little traction. I mean, you know, it didn't do Star Wars numbers, of course, but uh, 
became a bit of a cult thing. Yeah, Played totally some festivals, a cult got yeah. some uh, renown. And it's a weird movie. It's, it's like a weird, a weird, movie. weird, weird <laughs> movie. And it's got, and it's, it, it has this, uh, you know, psychological subtext that is extremely easy to understand, right? Yeah. I think one of the things I like about Eraserhead is like, like, I always thought it was a movie about sort of the fear of impending parenthood. Yes. And it's, it's very clearly a movie about the fear of impending parenthood. So, unlike a lot of art cinema that predated it, it's a little simpler. It's weird as hell. Yeah. It's funny. It's actually got a great sense of humor, as a lot of Lynch movies do. Um, but at the same time, you don't feel stupid leaving the theater. At the end of the day, you kind of understand what, what the director was trying to tell you. It's not as obtuse as a lot of art cinema yeah. in that day. So I, I think that created, you know, along with its sense of fun, created a good following for it. Sure. You know, like amongst the college crowds. You know, the, the, at the time, all art cinema was, well, really, it had a limited audience. You know, yes. mostly like the college crowds, the younger people. Some movies were marketed to well, frankly, drug users. Yeah. And, uh, so a lot of that, and Eraserhead just fit right into, like, that perfect happy zone of intersecting, you know, alternative cultures that would like a film like that. And it worked very well. And it, it was great for David Lynch because, boy, that suddenly, very quickly, he became a Hollywood guy. Hollywood came calling. That's very right. Quickly. And so that's... And that is a template that followed through the 80s and then especially into the 90s. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, David Lynch was maybe one of the prototypes. I mean, do you know any... That, that's the one that mostly comes to mind of that, like, make a movie completely on your own and then wait for Hollywood to, like, pay for the next one. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, th sometimes it would take filmmakers a couple of more movies. With Lynch, it was very quick. I mean, yeah. it was like Eraserhead. I mean, he's made films before Eraserhead, smaller films, but Eraserhead w was the big one. And then right away, Hollywood comes calling. His next film is Elephant Man. Yeah. And that's a fairly... That's a Hollywood product. It is, It's a Hollywood film, yeah. right? I mean, I, I think there was, like, what's the... What's the tale? Uh, uh, Elephant Man was famously produced by Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks saw the play Elephant Man with David Bowie, and he fell in love with the material. He bought it. He wanted to do it. He saw Eraserhead. He's like, I know exactly who's going to do it, and I know exactly how we're going to do it. It's going to be black and white. It's going to be bleak. It's, you know, it's, it's not a big Hollywood movie, but it's definitely a Hollywood movie. Yeah. And it worked. The Eraserhead was hugely successful. Yeah, it was nominated for Oscars and things. So then David Lynch, it's kind of funny, you know, <laughs> for people who know, you know, David Lynch is a very established persona now. Right. But in the early 80s, David Lynch was, he was a hot young director. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what he was being courted for yeah. uh, sci-fi movies and all sorts of things. And uh, Just a young guy with great hair. Is what he, <laughs> that's right. Nobody knew what a weirdo that was. I, it's always funny. Like, I always find it hilarious to visualize the David Lynch that we know now on the set of either The Elephant Man or his next film, which is Dune, which is, I mean, an even bigger expenditure of money sure. than Elephant Man. Elephant Man is a period drama. It's really a, kind of almost a two-hander between him and Anthony Hopkins uh, and uh, the, the main character, The Elephant Man. Yes, pejorative. He didn't <laughs> like being called that. Uh, but uh, 
that's essentially the movie to a large degree. It's really the interaction between sure. him and this other character. So it's still a smaller film, even though it is a mainstream Hollywood film. And then you get into Dune, now you're talking hundreds of characters and this expansive, some say unfilmable narrative that is Dune. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they were proven kind of right, right? I mean, Dune is not a very good movie. No, Dune's, uh, it's one of those things where no one seemed very happy about any aspect of it. Like, people weren't happy making it, uh, the producers weren't happy, David Lynch wasn't happy, uh, that did poorly at the box office. But, uh, but the story of Dune is also a great, like, uh, Dune is produced by Dino De Laurentiis, a, a legendary yes. Italian Hollywood producer. Yes. Uh, I always say that every th- interview I've heard about Dino De Laurentiis seems to be like, he's really into, uh, Tits and money. That seems to be, and he's like, we can get those things on the screen, we're good to go. And uh, so Dino De Laurentiis, you know, he's an entertaining guy, he's an opportunist. He hired David Lynch, and he booked him for a two-picture deal. These were the negotiations. (laughs) So this is actually one of the great stories about how the independent filmmakers learn to kind of work the system. And that David Lynch, uh, for anybody who doesn't know the story, it's great, he did a two-picture deal, and he's like, okay, I'll do this sci-fi movie, but then for my second movie, I get final cut. I get to do whatever I want. You can't tell me what to do. I'm going to make my own movie, final cut, but you pay for it. And Dino De Laurentiis is like, okay. But then Dino De Laurentiis tried to pull a little fast one on him and uh, said, you know, he David Lynch could only, his second movie had a very small budget. And I can't remember what it was. It was something like $5 million or something. And, you know, Dino De Laurentiis is used to making movies at that time for more like 20 to $30 million. So he thought, he's like, guys, screw this kid over. He thinks he's, you know, there's no way he can make a movie for $5 million. So then when the movie costs $10 million, I get to have a say in what it is. So checkmate me. But David Lynch, you know, made a racer head for peanuts. So he's like, $5 million? No, I can... Holy shit, we'll have catering on this movie. This is going to be amazing. Right, right. Although, remember, that was that was coming off of Dune. So yeah, you yeah. wonder, you know, and, and again, it comes back to, like, visualizing him in well, this he had, But he had the spirit of the independent filmmaker. Sure. So he's like, great, I will take this low budget. And he made Blue Velvet, right. which, uh, and, which was a, a success in every... You know, it, was, yeah. it made more money than it cost. It was a big critical success. It's certainly like, you know, I know Elephant Man had success, but really kind of cemented David Lynch and let him go on to make, you know, Twin Peaks, Wild at Heart, right. all sorts of things. Right. And, as you know, you can look at the credits, crazy Dino De Laurentiis, producer of things like Silence of the Lambs, is an executive producer on Blue Velvet. <laughs> Absolutely, and and a lot of uh, subsequent art films yeah. going forward because Dino, of course, realized, like, hey, these movies make money. There's money in this. Small yeah. investment, good return on the profit, and there you go. And yeah. so, so he loved that kind of stuff, and he kind of he went all in. He's you know a he his his sense of taste is not to be underestimated. Incidentally, he was a marketing guy. You know, he was the guy who who invented like making trailers where he he'll take all the best stuff from yeah, his yeah, movies yeah. and put them in there. People think there's better stuff in in the rest of the film, and there isn't. And so like like he's he's not to be underestimated for sure. But well, it, so the financing of all these things, I think, is a very important aspect because that's one of the things that seemed to change is that some of these little movies it became financially viable oh, yeah. so even if like it was you know in hollywood terms a very tiny budget as long as you could make that budget back it would work and the template for that is um 
you know, some B action movies, but especially horror movies. Yeah. Like horror movies had a track record, you know, go, I don't know, going back to the 50s even, of, you know, you can make a little, come B pictures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But, you know, make a little scary movie for not a lot of money, play it at drive-ins or whatnot, and you can make a little bit. Again, like, you know, not a what you would call blockbuster. Right. And the independent filmmakers of the 80s really took note of that. Um, famously, there was a Sam Raimi started out making horror movies. Right. And, uh, I mean, we'll talk about Sam Raimi in a minute, but like, an assistant editor on some of those movies was a guy named Joel Cohen. There you go. <laughs> Who him and his brother were looking to make movies, and you know they had some scripts they tried to send out, and they had no connections, and uh, nobody wanted to make their movies. So it's like, well, what am I going to do? So they came up taking a page out of the horror book, like maybe we can make kind of a suspense movie, but we could maybe we can make a trailer, like Dino De Laurentiis, right. and really play up, yeah, and make it seem like it's more of a like suspense, murder, sex thing than yeah. it is. Maybe we can give it a cool title like Blood Simple. Yes. <laughs> and there you go. And 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 a lot of that, the, the page that they specifically took it out of was the John Carpenter page book, yeah. playbook, right? I mean, that was, the, the, again, we come back to John Carpenter. We John seem Carpenter, to come back yeah, to I him in like, all our episodes. Why hasn't John Carpenter directed a James Bond movie? Because it's looking like that would be the ultimate yeah. film-driven picture. <laughs> the, the, in some ways, yes. Yes, it, it, it would. Maybe it's coming. Maybe on the next one they'll get him. Carpenter does Bond. <laughs> but... John Carpenter had such success with Halloween, which was self-produced. And, again, we're going back a little bit to the late 70s, but, of course, that this is where the transition happened. It blends, yeah. It blends. And so Carpenter's, you know, sort of indie spirit on Halloween and his marketing genius in some ways and plugging Halloween made this giant, giant hit that was Halloween where the movie movie quadrupled its budget, which is not hard. I'm sure it way more than quadrupled its budget. It was a bit of a cultural phenomenon. Oh, yeah. And allowed him to go on and make bigger Hollywood movies like The Thing or even Escape from New York to some extent. So so he kind of set the template. Uh, and um, other guys like Sam Raimi and the Coen brothers kind of picked up and went completely in different directions career-wise. Yeah. But Carpenter also, you know, is important... Not only for the example of Halloween, but, you know, he kept that, that hustler spirit. And that is the thing that kind of unites, like, even these directors with their, you know, they're very different, but they, they kept their independent roots so that when making even a Hollywood movie with, like, a smaller budget, they're like, well, okay, we'll make it work. We'll get creative. We'll hustle with this budget. As opposed to, you know, like, somebody who's always been in the studio system, they might throw up their hands and oh, just demand more money. Well, well, with almost all independent directors, if, if, you, if you ever hear interviews with, with any of these guys, they're going to say, when I got my big Hollywood movie, what amazed me the most is the amount of people that were on the set. Yeah. Like, all of a sudden, I'm on a set. I'm surrounded by 100 people. I don't know most of their names. Yeah. I, I don't know what most of them actually do. And, um, and that's the big difference. And they suddenly realize, like, wait a second. I've made my previous movies with a crew of, like, five people. Yeah. Now I have a crew of 75 people, and, like, now I understand where the money goes. Now yeah. I know that I could take exactly the same approach as these 75 people and do it with five people and, you know, make 
everything else is profit. And, yeah. and that's from a marketing perspective. It's, it's a powerful concept. But it also allowed these guys to work quickly and, and just, you know, get the most value up on the screen. Sure. Such as it is, the value. You know, like, like again, once you get no, into no, this and independent that's, I mean, cinema, it's a little weird. Especially because in the 80s, I mean, everyone is still shooting on film. Sure. And it's actually a factor about, like, film is not cheap. No. And uh, film... And film uh, is tough. To even just to do the decision to be like, let's do another take, um, it... You know, it, that's money. Like you're just, right. and when you don't have a lot of money, you're constantly thinking about like, wow, do I, like, how much money, how many takes can I literally afford? Yeah, yeah, that's and, an issue. But these filmmakers would learn those things. Like you know, the Coen brothers made Blood Simple when they were really kind of hustling to make sure they had enough money for the film stock. But that thing is carried over. Like you know, we recently there was a podcast where uh, Joel Coen's talking to Roger Deakins, and I think they said on Fargo. Like, you know, the amount of film shot, the amount of film used, it was a very tight ratio. Yes. Just because they were still used to it. Like, even when they could afford more takes, they were just like, well, that's, we're good. Right. So. And really, whatever works. Different techniques work for different different people. Yeah. But, but, but you definitely get the feeling that a pe- people coming out of the film era uh, and the independent film era specifically do a lot fewer takes. Sure. Than, yeah. say, uh, David Fincher. Yeah. Or Stanley Kubrick. You only have so many shoot days you can afford. you got to bust through it. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and then, of course, you also have kind of redistribution of locations that comes with the independent cinema, right? Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, movies don't necessarily need to originate in Hollywood. Therefore, they're not necessarily filmed around Hollywood. Yeah. Right? So now you got these filmmakers popping out of the Midwest and New York and other countries as well, like particularly Canada, which sometimes doesn't feel like another country, but is in fact <laughs> another country yes. north of the border. Yes. And um, and uh, the thing with Canada, of course, Canada has a strong uh, governmental support for the arts and cinema specifically. So Canada had kind of a structure of breeding filmmakers. They still do. They still do, yeah. And, uh, of course, one of these filmmakers that was bred out of Canada is David Cronenberg. And similarly to John Carpenter, but differently, he came out of the 70s, made these weird, really weird-ass movies in the 70s, too, you know? And And at least initially, mostly what you would... You could... A horror guy. Yeah. At least a star. Definitely. Definitely definitely genre-oriented, but... what an evolution in that career, you know, yeah. like, like I've sort of lo- looking at David Cronenberg's filmography now. Uh, I, I honestly feel like he's one of my favorite filmmakers. I mean, I can it's hard to think of anybody else in the working still working. Yeah. Um, who have been as diverse in their choice of material as daring in their in the kind of movies they were making and um, as just generally committed to the art of intelligent cinema as that guy and what's great about him is a lot of times he fails miserably like a lot of, like yeah. he's willing to swing for the fences which most larger budget filmmakers don't yeah they just don't have the guts to do it and they can't afford to do it like spielberg can't make a friggin bizarre movie about weapons made out of body parts it's not gonna <laughs> fucking happen right uh, and, but Cronenberg, t- temperamentally, no. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe Spielberg could, but but I don't even think at this point. Yeah. After the 
the, the, his recent track record. And again, I'm using Spielberg simply just, this is big Hollywood. Right? Yeah. That, to me, he's kind of the avatar of giant Hollywood. But it doesn't have to be Spielberg. It could be Nolan. It could be uh, James Cameron. Uh, it could be Ridley Scott. To some well, extent. I mean, there's a freedom in the lower budgets. That's exactly it. Yeah. And uh, to me, nobody exploited that freedom better than David Cronenberg. Sure. Uh, and I mean, like, like his movie, like, like his track record is great. And sometimes he'll slip into Hollywood filmmaking into like larger budget stuff, as he did with the Dead Zone with Christopher Walken, and to some extent uh, with Dead Ringers. But he never lost the the kind of the Gonzo stuff. And, no, I mean, like, it's I, is there such a thing as like a non weird Cronenberg movie? Like, I think is there anyone? Yeah, there, there's none that has any. That you're like, oh yeah, that's just straight. There's nothing odd about it. Well, if the narrative isn't isn't weird in itself, then the subject matter is weird, yeah. you know? Or just the ideas explored in it are weird that are unlike other other stuff. I mean, Scanners is uh, definitely a genre film, right? Sure. It's sort of, it falls into the horror category. But it's kind of cool the way it approaches it. It's, you know, it's it's a horror film, it's creepy, but it's kind of daring in some of, the, some of the places it goes. And same with Videodrome. I mean, deals with weird conspiracy theories and these, these mind control things that the government's doing that may actually be true, Steve. <laughs> That's the weird yeah. part. Like, as weird as those movies are, he always, like, kind of zeroes in on something that may actually be a thing. We know now, as in Scanners, we know that the government has for years conducted experiments in uh, ESP. Sure. And telekinesis. That's that's documented. We also know that secret signals are, in fact, encoded into most television programs that you watch. We don't know what they're doing. Maybe they're just trying to sell you shampoo. Sure. Or maybe not. We don't know. <laughs> and Cronenberg knows. Who planted these ideas in the early 80s into the greater consciousness? David Cronenberg through these weird movies. And then, of course, now he gets to do The Dead Zone, which is... Excellent film, and, and one of the top three, I would say, Stephen King films. Yeah. Excellent film. Very effective now. Walk-in before he became the stereotypical walk-in. Correct, yeah. This we may be the still, first... Just a working actor. Super yeah. stereotypical. Like, this may be the beginning of Walk-in's iconic period. Yeah. Uh, Speaking Martin of Sheen the, is great in the yeah. film. It's just cool. It's a great film. Really, really, I think people forget how good The Dead Zone is. Watch it. Excellent. And then he follows it up with Dead Ringers. What the fuck, man? <laughs> I love Dead Ringers. That is a, that's a fucked up movie. That's I a say fucked that with up admiration. Movie. Oh, absolutely. It's incredibly fucked up, and I just watched it. And, Steve, I cannot tell you how fucked up that movie is. And, and what's great about it to me is that it's got the sheen of a mainstream Hollywood film. Yeah. It looks good. It's slick. It's well shot. It's got some budget in it. But everything the- thematically... Plot-wise, character-wise, and storytelling-wise is so fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. mean, it is a crazy, perverse film that actually has a lot of intelligent things to say about the nature of identity and sexuality, and it, it's it's fucked up. Yeah. But man, it holds up great. I mean, it's great, and Jeremy Irons honestly deserves every accolade he gets for that dual performance as the Mantle Twins. And, yeah. And man, he's great. Amazing. 
It's really the performance that all other twin performances are measured against. <laughs> Steve. And, you know, I love a good twin performance. I don't know about you. I love a good twin performance. I hate a bad twin performance. But a good twin performance, you know, adaptation. And well, adaptation is fantastic. Legend. Yes. And all of them owe a debt of gratitude to the way the whole twin thing is handled by David Cronenberg in Dead Ringers. Yeah. Just the way it's handled, the casualness. How quickly you forget that this is the same actor. How quickly you forget that it's a trick. You're being tricked. And I, I love I love Cronenberg. Yeah. I can do a whole episode on Cronenberg, but to me he's a he's a key figure of the coming out of the eighties because like his the amount of movies he put out in the eighties is quite a few. There's a lot of films that came out in the eighties and uh, and they're they're all weird and wonderful in their own unique way, and that's a, it's a great track record. Yeah, I mean, even you know his most to date commercially successful film is you know the Fly remake. Absolutely, and that's almost you know, it's it's his biggest hit, but it's not like an anomaly in terms of like the work. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's, it's actually, a total David Cronenberg. Film. Yeah, and it's right in the pocket of taking. Uh, not necessarily even a simple premise, but that maybe a straightforward premise and just making it a little more odd. You know, that the, the Fly obviously was a Vincent Price movie. It was yeah. a lot campier. Oh but it, it's not as simple as he played it straight. No. It's uh, all of a sudden the Fly about a man turning into a fly becomes this whole commentary on, like, body mutation. And uh, it's, yeah, right. I mean, the well, Fly also is great. It's fantastic. And Cronenberg, you know, Cronenberg has this a bit of this reputation, and that reputation is entirely owed to the, his work from the 80s, is he's body-obsessed. Like, yes. his, his, he, he works in a, almost a subgenre, which is body horror. And, you know, it's fair to some extent, but, you know, to me, he's always been a filmmaker who's taken his obsessions, uh, which may, you know, I have no idea how prevalent these obsessions are in his private life. Hopefully not that prevalent, I would imagine. He seems like a down-to-earth Canadian. Nothing, nothing that crazy about David Cronenberg. But uh, you see this stuff pop up in his films, and he seems to be like a guy who exercises his demons on screen. That's and I've always really appreciated that about him. You know, like and David Lynch has definitely some of the same quality. But if you look at their outputs in the '80s. Like Cronenberg's amount of films that Cronenberg put out is just way eclipses anything Lynch does. I mean, Lynch yeah, really is no, outside. Yeah, Cronenberg is very prolific. Like, yeah, and, he, and even to this day, for you know, he's uh, he's getting up there in years, but there still seems to be like a new Cronenberg at least every like three or four years. Yeah, yeah, um, he keeps working at, di- at different levels of success. Like his last great film was, I think. Uh, Eastern Promises, right? I, I mean, I've seen some stuff since then, but so it's been a good 10 years since his last great film. But, you know, he made a couple of excellent films with Viggo Mortensen, and, uh, and Eastern Promises was the second one, and History of Violence was the first one. And uh, they were both highly regarded and I think made some money yeah. back from the day when people still went and paid to see independent film at the theater. Like, those days seem to be behind us. Or when you could go to the theater at all. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, a special shout-out. It was a 79 movie, but uh, I was all, I'm was i a huge fan of Cronenberg's movie, The Brood. The Brood. Which talk about working out your demons. Um, Andre, I love it when a uh, filmmaker, like, you know, say they're going through a tough time, whether it's a death or a separation, and, you know, 
the standard thing is you write just like a drama that, you know, nakedly is about what you're going through. Like, for example, uh, a divorce story, the recent movie with Adam Driver. Clearly, you know, the director was right. through a divorce. It's about, a, you know, even if it's not strictly autobiographical, it's not hard to read the tea leaves of that. Right. But uh, then some filmmakers decide to, like, channel these things and put it in a, a more genre thing to, you know, dress it up in an odder premise. And uh, if you've never seen The Brood, so it was made at a time when Cronenberg himself was going through a bitter divorce, kind of a custody battle with his uh, soon-to-be ex-wife of their daughter. So Cronenberg made a movie about a man and his daughter, and his, the man's estranged wife starts uh, generating mutant hate babies that emerge from her stomach <laughs> that then take form and try to kill the family. So, uh, I mean, that's my pick for the best divorce movie of all time. Like anybody, you know, Kramer versus Kramer, that's for suckers. Anybody can do that. Sign me up for the guy who's like, my ex is, you know, generating out of her body manifestations of hate that will try to harm me and my child. <laughs> Brilliant, and it makes a great double feature bill with Eraserhead, of course, because yeah. there's some of the same themes are explored. But but again, such weirdness, like the mind that comes up with that, yeah. is 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 fascinating to me. And the same, I'm going to come back to Dead Ringers again. Like 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 Dead Ringers is insane. It is literally like <laughs> who would want to make a movie about a pair of psychologically disturbed twin gynecologists. I mean, everything about it is dis disturbing, just conceptually. And somehow, Cronenberg was able to raise some funds for this baby and 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 pull it off so brilliantly. Oh, people saw it, yeah. I mean, people like, we're talking it. about it. Yeah. It was a hit. Yeah. People wanted to see it. They were like, yeah, let's go see the crazy gynecologist thing tonight. about yeah. where they, there's a lot of mutilation in the film, a lot, a lot more than from in most mainstream Hollywood films, or really all films, frankly. Yeah. And there you go. It's a hit. Jeremy Irons gets uh, Oscar-nominated. Did he win the Oscar for that? Because if he no, didn't... No, I don't think... I think he, um, it wasn't until Reversal of Fortune. Who, who was possibly better than Jeremy Irons in, like, in that performance? I cannot imagine a better... 87, 88... 80, like what was it like chariots of fire like who got the fuck who thought that somebody gave a better performance than that was it ben kingsley and gandhi what what happened was it like i don't know how you could beat that performance it's the rain man year oh jesus so what hoffman gets it he was nominated jeremy irons was not nominated nope get the fuck out of here Dustin Hoffman won the Oscar for uh, Rain Man. And the other nominees were Gene Hackman and Mississippi Burning. Okay, great performance, sure. Edward James Olmos and Stand and Deliver. Okay. Max, Fa Max Van Sydow and Pele the Conqueror. Okay. And Tom Hanks in Big. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, not, not taking anything away from any of these other performances, but... This is insane, dude. This is insane. Uh, the, the Jeremy Irons in Dead Ringers is is one of the great performances ever. I yeah. I mean, I'm outraged retroactively for like the embarrassment that the Oscars were even back then. I'm not even talking about like now. I the mean, 2020 film a, driven mark it down. We are boycotting the 1989 Academy Awards. I'm boycotting the 1989 <laughs> Academy Awards and possibly the 2020 ones as well. But but that's another story. This this is this is shocking to me, Steve. Honestly, yeah. this I'm shocked. 
he's fantastic in the film. And anybody who has not seen Dead Ringers, please don't watch it on an empty stomach. That's all I got to tell you. <laughs> don't, do not, if, not that it's gross, it is psychologically gross. It yeah. is disturbing on levels that are beyond special effects and surgery. But there's still plenty of surgery. Yeah. Uh, but well, uh, so let's leave Canada for a while because we want to talk about. Um, I feel like New York City really became kind of the, really the epicenter of American independent cinema in the eighties. You know, there were pocket the directors and other locations, but New York really produced um, a lot of the giants. Like we mentioned, the Coen Brothers, but uh, then there was Jim Jarmusch. We're going to mention a guy named Spike Lee. Yes, There's a lot going on in New York, and uh, I'm not sure what was in the water there, but why, where, like how that became a place. To, I, you know, if you ask me, having gone to college in New York, I would think New York would be an expensive place to do an independent film. Yeah. You know, that it'd be a lot easier somewhere else. But maybe it's a good place to raise money. Well, well it's it, it seems to be it, it seemed to be the second hub to Hollywood, all, yeah. like pretty much going back to the golden age of Hollywood. Sure. So you know, so Cassavetes was out of New York. Then Woody Allen, of course, who really needs to be discussed to some extent oh, is yeah. a paragon of independent cinema uh all from the late 60s all through the 70s all through the 80s uh, i forgot about that but you're right woody allen is certainly a template of how to make movies at a budget that you want to make absolutely yeah. and independently from hollywood to a large degree yeah. but but i think woody allen sort of say, sits in a different in a different arena a little bit to me he sits more with the auteur guys from the from the the 70s and we'll talk about what they were doing in the 80s and we'll certainly talk about Woody's work but uh, but Woody's certainly out of New York and is a quintessential New York filmmaker he made Manhattan after all uh, and uh, and along with Cassavetes but now in the 80s now these other guys are coming out and New York once again is a critical critical I guess the thing is they could stay there you know, it just felt like in the 70s, you still had to go to Hollywood, like at the end of the day, like right. to get your stuff made. And um, in the 80s, they started, that's not necessarily true. I mean, uh, so one of the guys came out was Jim Jarmusch, is yeah. a hallmark of the 80s and the 90s cinema. Uh, Jim Jarmusch's first movie was technically Permanent Vacation. Uh, that movie's not very good. It was basically an expanded school project yeah. he made at the end of grad school. Yeah. It never played theatrically. Like, it played at some festivals and got him a little bit of buzz, but it didn't, uh, it never had a theatrical release. Right. So anyone who ever tells you that they've been a Jarmusch fan since they saw a permanent vacation, at the uh, that's a goddamn lie. <laughs> In an art cinema. <laughs> but his second movie, um, I don't know. Stranger Than Paradise, really took off. Right. And then, uh, and that was a movie that was made for, again, like, well under $200,000. Yes. But... Um, and it feels like it. Yeah. It feels like a cheap movie. But what he, what he did do that was kind of cool is he developed some cool relationships. Yes. And he seemed to have a natural knack for working with non, non-actors and yeah. getting interesting performances out of them. And he's good with actors, too, to be yeah. honest with you. But, 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 like, right away, like, Tom Waits and uh, John Lurie yeah. right, become his, like, muses to a large extent. And he makes movies around these guys personas to some extent and i don't know these movies have a very loose pseudo improvised vibe to them yeah. am i wrong no and uh, also like uh, jim jarmusch and 
I always forget like the chicken and the egg story of this, but it's a very similar style to one of my favorite non-American directors is the Finnish director, uh, Aki Kaurismaki. That mm-hmm. they have very similar tone. Uh, and this isn't like uh, by chance to the part that then later on with Night on Earth, like Jim Jarmusch would cast some of the Finnish actors that were in these movies. And then Jim Jarmusch himself has had a cameo in some of Aki's movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just a very, it's like a deadpan sense of humor. Right. That uh, the movies are essentially comedy, but just dry as bone. Very, very um, And Jim Jarmusch has a reputation as like, you know, kind of like the ultimate hipster director in a very, way. Very and nice. this reputation is deserved. I mean, yeah. he uh, he did something that a lot of people you know, aspired to, that he actually did it. I mean, Jim Jarmusch is from Ohio. And then, you know, he went to college in uh, Chicago for a little bit. He tried out at Northwestern, and that didn't work. He didn't. He got an actually bachelor's degree from Columbia. But then he wound up, he was in Paris for a while. And then he's one of those guys, he just essentially is like, you know what, I'm going to move to New York and just start trying to hang out with cool people. And it worked out very well for him. I mean, that's, I mean. Right, right. So Jim Jarmusch, a guy who initially, you know, Kid from Ohio, did some time in Paris. Just like a cool guy with good taste. But, I mean, he's got no connections. Right. Doing anything. He wants to make a filmmaker. Right. You know, he wants to be a filmmaker. But when he arrives on the scene, he's not making movies. He's no. not anybody. No. But he starts going to CBGBs right. and meeting people and just hanging out. And uh, another guy with great hair. Great I mean, hair. Maybe it's a factor. And supposedly, like, him and Tom Waits is uh, one of the early friendships was that you know, Tom Waits by that point was already an established songwriter, but Tom Waits was hanging out in New York in the early 80s. And, you know, he, he's had a career, obviously, sure, but sure. not like he could go out in public. Oh, totally. And uh, supposedly Jim Jarmusch and uh, Tom Waits bonded over their shared sense of, like, fashion and uh, bouffant hair. Absolutely. And both <laughs> and, uh, have the eraser head hairstyle, right? Yeah, but, I mean, it's like, you know, now, of course, you're like, oh, of course those guys were friends. But it's just fun to think about. You know, it's 1980. Yeah. And Tom Waits is like, yeah, he's a cool guy. He's been like a, you know, renowned cult following lounge songwriter yeah. guy for Tom a Waits. decade. But sure. then Jim Jarmusch is just a dude with cool hair and maybe some <laughs> nice shoes. But he's cool. Yeah, well, that's, and I mean, that's hats it. off to Jim Jarmusch, who actually Absolutely. does. I mean, like, I don't know about you. I grew up in Ohio, and you have dreams of, like, you know, like, one I day I did not I'm... grow up in Ohio. <laughs> but, I mean, you you think, like, well, if I can just get to, like, the big city... Then it'll work out, you know. Like that—that's my trajectory. Like, right. You know, I just got to move to New York. Right. I'm so cool. I've, I'll become friends with. I'll a bunch move of to New stars. York, and within six months, I'm somehow embedded in like some hip music scene, and I Absolutely. just meet people and blah blah blah. But then, you know, the reality for most of us, and especially for me, is that you know you get you move to the big city, and uh, you know no one cares who you are. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, just you know, face in the crowd. Yeah, you know, like you're. Your Cure t-shirt might have had some cachet and your small town, but here we're like, whatever. <laughs> That's uncool, man. But hats off to Jim against... Jarmusch. Absolutely. Yeah. And Jim Jarmusch also came came through kind of the musical side door to film. Yeah, he did. And he's always had a very, very strong connection to to musical, musically themed projects. And sure. he's made a lot of music videos and, and kind of concert films and stuff like that. So there's there's that kind of element of Jim Jarmusch that's always played in. And again, like his like relationship with John Lurie and Tom Waits kinda kinda gave him instant cachet in the alternative world. 
an alternate, and here he's kind of at the crossroads of the alternative cinema and alternative music. Yeah, no, he came out, he was always casting, not only casting musicians in his movies, but then also, um, you know, later on made a lot of documentaries. Right. Neil Young, and um, he's working on some of the Stooges. Absolutely, um, yeah. yeah. Enough... That's the last thing I've seen of him is that Stooges documentary. Yeah, and Stranger Than Paradise, his breakthrough film, starred Richard Edson, who, you know, some of you may know he was one of the brothers in Do the Right Thing, but before that, he was a drummer in a band called Sonic Youth. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. He's great. I love Richard Edson. Yeah. I, I, I don't see enough of that guy. I, is he alive? I don't know. Okay. Well, let's let's not look it up. Let's just let's just pretend because <laughs> I really like him. And also, Jim Jarmusch like would have these long running projects that would occasionally involve a lot of musicians as well. There's always like a musical element to his stuff. Like yeah. he did this thing called Coffee and Cigarettes, which where he did a bunch of short films. Like he did, he made a short film with Tom Waits and Iggy Pop called Coffee and Cigarettes, where literally Tom Waits and Iggy Pop themselves meet at a diner and have cigarettes and drink coffee and have weird conversations. Yeah. And I love that film. I saw it. I don't know how the heck I saw it. It it, it was like I saw like a bootleg copy. Yeah, because it. it's one of those things that was around but not, you know, sometimes it might play before right. some other movie, but you might not necessarily know it's coming. Absolutely. Like you might have a ticket to something and then like right. before it starts, you're like, wait a minute, what's this? Well, again, it was too obscure for home video and yeah. it was a short film, so how do you see that? And, yeah. And to this day, I don't remember how I got my hands on the tape, but I had the tape. I loved it. And and then, of course, a few years later, he expanded Coffee and Cigarettes and included that short film. With yeah, well, he, he had done a couple over the years. So, yeah, mm -hmm. like now you can go rent Coffee and Cigarettes. Yeah. You know, it's approximately 90 minutes or yeah, whatever. Yeah. But it's got... And fast forward to the Iggy Pop Tom Waits film, which really is the best part of it anyway. There's some other great ones. I love the Kate Blanchett one, and I love the... Uh, what's the one with uh, Steve Coogan? And uh, 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 yes, that's it? a good. That is a good one. That it's Steve Coogan and uh, who, who, what's his who name from Raiders? Alfred Molina. Like Alfred Molina. Oh, that's a that's the that's the other good one. Yeah. So I'll see those two. Jarmusch is one of those guys who, despite his style, that's very laid back and you know sometimes slowly paced, almost conversational, but uh, very prolific. Jarmusch is always working. Yeah. Uh, there's always a, a new movie, a video, a documentary, a short. Like just never stops. Yeah. Like yeah. constantly producing things. Active, very active filmmaker. Yeah, it's, it is, and it that's is, another is, way to these, this day. Yeah, I mean that's another way these guys can survive. Yeah, is that uh, you know one way if you're never doing that movie where somebody pays you, you know, ten million at a pop to make the movie, then the way you literally like make your living is you got to work. <laughs> you know, you got to right. produce something. Absolutely, absolutely, you got it, you got it, and that's. That's what we're doing with Film Driven, Steve. That's right. We're trying to do we're something. We're putting, putting this time to good well, use. Well, and so another one of my New York heroes hustling up is, uh, of course, Spike Lee. Spike. Spike Lee is a great New York filmmaker. Maybe, I mean, second only to, like, Woody in terms, Woody and Marty. Spike Lee's third on the list. Cassavetes. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I don't hold Spike Lee in as high regard as you do, Steve, yeah. in terms of it's skill. I think a... he's spotty. I think, yeah. I think some of his films are excellent, and other of his films are really bad. And and you never know what you're going to get. But he is definitely has a unique voice, Yeah. And, uh, and his early films are really good. His early films are really good, and, um, you know, if you anybody listening has ever read, there's a very great kind of a famous book about this the 90s got uh, Spike, Smike, Slackers, and Dykes. Yes. Uh, by was Pearson? Is that the guy's name? Yeah. But uh, it was by a guy who was a movie... 
I forget the title, what do you call it? He would acquire movies and help represent filmmakers. So, like, if a film... Yeah, well, it's like if a film went to a festival, they would need help selling it. Like, what's the deal? Yeah. And this guy says in the book repeatedly that, you know, whatever you think of his work, he said Spike Lee's his hero in terms of just how he worked the business. Um, Spike Lee was also an interesting... One of the guys who really, on purpose, leaned into his persona... I mean, oh, yeah. Spike Lee would try and sell, like, merchandise from his movies before right. his movies were even hits. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just like, hey, She's Gotta Have It. You've never heard of this movie, but maybe you'd like a She's Gotta Have It hat. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Spike Lee was, is, a, is a very astute marketing guy, yeah. you know, and he's marketed a persona that, that's admittedly larger than the, the Spike Lee, the filmmaker. You know sure. what I mean? He, like, he exists, like... He for a while was doing these crazy Nike commercials where yeah, he I mean, played he... characters, and of course, being an actor in his own movies makes him a little bit. Well, actually, it's very much in line with the New York guys, right? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're like they're all actors in their own movies. Woody well, Allen is actors in his own movies. Cassavetes was Spike an actor Lee in way his own more movie. though than some of the. I mean, like and the, then Spike Lee, yeah. right? Not Jar, Jar not, not Jarmusch, not the Coens, but no, no, no. Uh, those guys are Spike not Lee in their movie. A, but yeah. Spike Lee definitely was like, he's. I'm taking my cues from Scorsese. I'm taking my cues from Woody Allen. I'm taking my cues from John Cassavetes, and I'm going to be a household name, even if my films aren't. And yeah. so it is. Yeah, he made it happen. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, you know, he had this side character in his first movie, Mars Blackman, and then mm-hmm. when he got offered the opportunity to do some commercials for Nike, his pitch was like, what if they starred Michael Jordan and me? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and sure enough. It was funny. Yeah. It was funny, and you got a good performance out of Michael Jordan. And, and again, you know, the guy sort of created the persona that, that we now think of Spike Lee. Love him or hate him, not everybody is a fan, but nonetheless... Uh, you know, he's been very successful in that. What do you think his best 80s movie is? Well, it's got to be Do the Right it's Thing. It's got to be Do the Right yeah. Thing, right? That was a seismic and, you know, also a very relevant film to this day, right? Yeah. It works. Do the Right Thing is probably the best. I mean, I do love She's Gotta Have It. Um, the other one, School Days, I'm, it's got moments. But, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, Do the Right Thing, is. I think that's movie three. So, I mean... Spike quickly kind of moves into the 90s yes. after we get out of it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Do the Right Thing is not only his best movie of the 80s, but, you know, still probably... It's his most iconic. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd say it's his best movie, too. Yeah, yeah. In some ways. In some ways. And again, you know, he's done some interesting work as a gun for hire, you know, doing bigger Hollywood projects. Yeah. Um, my favorite is The 25th Hour, which I think is, like, from... Three or five. Yeah, it's his post 9 11 movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm a, I mean, he's. I like Jungle Fever. I'm a big fan of Malcolm X. I think it's great. And yeah. I, my underrated Spike Lee, if you want to give a recommendation, is uh, I'm actually a big fan of Summer of Sam. Yes. Uh, yes. Which uh, to me is it's the only movie I think I've seen that does a thing that people talk about all the time, which is people say they're you know they're making a movie about a serial killer, and sometimes people and I don't they're just trying to be. PC or what, but they'll say, like, you know, like, well, I mean, our movie's not, like, we don't want to glorify the serial right. killer, we don't want to sensationalize it, blah, and then you go see the movie, and it absolutely sensationalizes yes. it, I mean, the whole movie is like, right. and I'm not even necessarily saying that's bad, I mean, like, that's, I mean, any serial killer story, like, I mean, that's the interesting part of it, otherwise it's just a crime, right, right, I mean, like, people get shot and killed all the time, all over the place, and you don't make a movie about it, if a guy, like, also wants to eat you. Like well, that's a twist. That's a twist. <laughs> but Summer of Sam man really. Man bites dog, <laughs> or another yeah. man. 
I mean, but Summer of Sam really is about, it's more about the effects of the killer on the neighborhood. It's and, an interesting approach. Yeah, and how the fear comes into it. Yeah. And uh, and also got a little bit of punk rock in there. Which totally. Which is kind of unusual for which Spike is, Lee, but totally. it's good. Yeah. But cool, absolutely. And the way he shows the scene, like that movie is like, it's, it's kind of... Like you feel like you're part of it. It, yeah. it. it draws you in very nicely, and it's that's not always easy to do with a movie that covers big stuff. Like to me, that movie really reminds me of like Nashville a little bit in a funny yeah, way. Yeah, in an interesting way. Yeah, these different pockets of characters yeah, and how yeah. they all interact in the town. Yeah, 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 and how an event, kind of a seismic cultural event that's happening at the time, galvanizes different communities in different ways. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I'm a big fan of that film as yeah. well. And, I mean. Uh, Spike overall, I mean, the thing is, it, obviously, you know, explicitly political. Yeah. Like all of his of movies, and uh, sometimes almost to a fault. I mean, it's the thing he shares with a lot of Oliver Stone pictures to me is that yeah. there are, Spike Lee can be, you know, even speaking as a fan, he can be really guilty of the fact that his characters are often like secondary to his ideas. But then if you watch a movie, like, you want to fall in love with the characters, you know? And right. that's, why part of the reason people love to do the right thing is they actually have, like, affection for all the characters right. in that movie, especially even Mookie, his right. character. Sure. But, you know, he has a lot of movies where, like, you can't even remember the first name of the guy. Or, you know, like, you just kind of know the concept. Yeah. Like, oh, that's, that's the interracial movie, or that's the one about yeah. drugs. And his movies will sometimes have this moment, and uh, even Summer Sam has this, where a character late in the game will just give a monologue, which is, like, just in case you didn't get it, I want to, like bluntly tell you the moral you should get and uh, so but to me the thing about spike is like in almost every spike lee movie there's a bit that's too much sure but i just kind of take it as the price of admission and, yeah. you know, and, and i under i completely understand there's some people who are like this is a deal breaker for me that, yeah. but it's just like it is well sometimes it works sometimes it, sometimes it does and, sometimes. and another thing that spike lee i don't think gets enough credit for is he's excellent with actors he's actually he in casting yeah. He's excellent at, at getting good performances out of people. Like, sometimes I feel like his direction slash editorial process is a little off. Yeah. Like, I think some of his pacing is, is often very clunky. But, man, he gets great performances out of people. He sure does. Every, yeah. every time. And he's great at casting people, you know? Yeah. Uh, and uh, so that, that helps, you know? When you have less defined characters, it always helps that you could hire, a, you know, a John Torturo to play that less defined yeah, character. Yeah, exactly. Because John Torturo is going to come in with a bunch of ideas, yeah. and boom, you got, now all of a sudden you have a well-defined character who's also doing what you want him to do in terms of, you know, narrative or... Yeah, and one of those guys over the years who just, like, his reputation, I think, with actors is, you know, I've heard about him giving some really good notes to them, but also just creates an atmosphere where, like, he lets them work, and they, everyone feels comfortable. So yeah. then... Uh, this doesn't really work. So, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I'm more pro-Spike than you, though. Almost any time anyone discusses the reasons they don't like Spike Lee, I'm like, well, you're not off base. I know all of those right. things are uh, right. things you can acknowledge. Well, again, I mean, with, with you know, my my issue with him mainly is just the uh, unevenness of his stuff. Yeah. And, and when, you know, when he does get up, you know, on a high horse about 
various issues that are important to him, which is absolutely fine and is his right to do as a as an artist. Uh, sometimes he forgets the artistry, sure, you know, and yeah. that's that's my main issue. So it's just sort of the unevenness of his output. Well, that's the thing about Spike is it's interesting for a guy who makes movies and by all accounts like loves movies. Like apparently, mm-hmm. you know, like if you talk to Spike Lee, he can talk to you for hours and hours yeah. about classic Hollywood cinema. Yeah, like yeah. clearly a big movie guy. Absolutely. Every Spike Lee movie, you almost, you feel like he will sacrifice the movie for the politics 100% of the time. Right. Like, that's... Yeah, it's, it's just a given. That's it's an he, interesting approach that, yeah. you know, I don't know if he would admit to this, but watching the Spike Lee movie, like you say, they're some of the ones that I think are clunkers or where it's like it's more obvious than others. That It just seems like his point, his whole reason to make a movie... Is to make a political statement. Just to preach a yeah. sp- specific point of view. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. The idea of making a movie is almost secondary. Right. It's like the movie is just his vehicle for getting out a political point of view. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I'm not always a big fan of that. I right. mean, not right. even with him, but right. with other filmmakers With other filmmakers too. as yeah. well. Yeah, they get too vehement in their political stances. And it's not, and it it's doesn't even like, necessarily have a lot to do with whether right. or not I do or don't agree with the politics. Right. It's like when I watch a movie, I want a good movie. Right, right. If I wanted yeah. to read an essay about the politics, I'll read an essay. Absolutely, absolutely. That's, you know, he's, he's an interesting filmmaker to talk about as well. And again, still a very active filmmaker. Like the last thing he made with The Five Bloods, right, that may get nominated for an Oscar. We could talk about that yeah. from another time. But, but, uh, but, you know, again, still a very, very active filmmaker, vital, vital filmmaker working today that essentially rose out of the 80s. So, once again, the 80s has a lot that we should be thankful for. (laughs) Along with some stuff that we shouldn't be too thankful for. But, you know, a great decade. Like, who who would you say is your personal favorite out of the 80s filmmakers? I'm a Coen's guy. I mean, uh, you know, I certainly like all these other guys we're talking about. But, but I mean, uh, Cohen's made, like, what, two or th- three films in the 80s? What, what were they? Three films, yeah. Three they films. made Blood Simple, uh, Raising Blood Arizona, and um, Miller's Crossing. My, yeah, it might have been 1990. Yeah, Miller's Crossing is right there, and right right towards the end of that. Yeah, and all Well, I mean, those... I, so I guess the question is, you're asking me, who are my favorite filmmakers who kind of emerged out of the 80s, or who did the best work in the 80s? Yeah. Well, I think if we were going to just quantify it, I got to go with Cronenberg. Yeah. I mean, like out of the, 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 the indie filmmakers, out of the alternative movie makers of the 80s, I think in terms of volume, it's got to be Cronenberg. But I'm not asking you in terms of volume. I'm asking you what your personal sentiment is. My personal favorite are, yeah, the, the Coens. Though I do, I mean, I think Do the Right Thing is an all-time great movie mm-hmm. you know, from yeah. the, the 80s. And same with... Um, you know, we'll talk here in a little bit about Gus Van Sant, but yeah, Cronenberg maybe has the best like volume overall thing. I would agree with you yeah, on that. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, if it was baseball, he'd have the best average. Is that I believe that's called? Yeah. But yeah. But, but I mean, obviously, the Coen Brothers are giants of the world cinema, right? They're yeah. amongst the finest directors we have. Uh, so it's hard. You know, they they really have blown past everybody else well, and, on that list. I mean, for me personally, the Coen brothers are, um, like, one of the things I grew up, when I was a kid, one of my favorite bands was R.E.M., and one of the things I loved about them was just the consistency, that I felt like 
They essentially yeah. didn't make a bad album for right. like almost 10 albums. It was a pretty good run. And that was how I felt about the Coen brothers. Like, I like some movies better than others, but I don't think it was until this century that they made a movie that I disliked. Right. So, oh, which one was that? Intolerable Cruelty. Intolerable cu- Cruelty, you, you, you hate it. I'm, I'm uh, not a big fan of uh, Hail Caesar. That one is certainly down the list. Yeah, same the Lady Killers. I kind of felt Intolerable Cruelty and the Lady Killers are back-to-back, mm-hmm. and those are my least favorite. Exactly. Uh, and uh, Hail Caesar is probably exactly. number three. Exactly. But, uh, but the point is, from Blood Simple through, um, like, I guess, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Maybe The Man Who Wasn't There? Like, they had a solid almost 20-year run where I liked every movie. Right, right, right. And so... Yeah, it's hard to beat those guys. They yeah. are they are in a class all by themselves. But if you get back into the 80s, and we were talking a little bit about that that crossroads between the, the alternative music scene and and the alternative cinema scene, and, of course, nobody exemplifies that better than Alex Cox, right, who sort of personifies the punk aesthetic yeah. in filmmaking, right? So Alex Cox made two major films in the 80s, but they're both so incredibly iconic that you can't talk about independent cinema without mentioning Repo Man and Sid and Nancy. Those are, and, and these are iconic punk rock movies. And they're punk rock not just in their subject matter, necessarily, even though Repo Man's not really about punk rock, but it's there's certainly, it. there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of punks in it, yeah. in it, you know, and a lot of the kind of the ethos is in it while it's also kind of making fun of it as well which is kind of funny but but both of those films are kind of wacky and very endearing in their own way like we both saw repo man recently and yeah and you know it's hard to to call it great cinema right <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was fun. i was watching with my wife and early on there's a scene in uh, the supermarket right before uh, otto quits his job <laughs> and i was like Wow, they just broke the 180 rule there for no good reason. And it wasn't like an arty, you're like, oh, that's just a little sloppy. Yeah, yeah. And the whole film is sloppy. Yeah. It's just sloppy. It, it, you know, characters do whatever the fuck the plot wants them to do. There's no consistency. There's some, you know, there's some catchy lines. But I really don't, I'm not sure I understand Otto, the main character in that <laughs> film. I'm not sure I understand Harry Dean Stanton. And for me, I'm not, not sure understand- Emilio Estevez understood Otto. Well, I, don't, I don't think it's still his best performance yeah. in my opinion opinion but uh, but you know i don't know how much that is to say but nonetheless uh but so endearing you know so fun to watch and i watched it with my 16 year old son and he loved it he's like yeah this is great this is crazy and i don't understand what's going on and it doesn't matter and like it's just it's just a wacky you know punky fun science fiction goofy movie yeah. that everybody loves and and then you get into Sid and Nancy which is certainly much more of an actual biopic i mean Sid and Nancy is a much more serious film it's a sure. it's a biopic it's a movie that introduced the world to a very large degree to the genius that is Gary Oldman yeah and uh, boy is he good yeah i mean and but that movie is also not without jokes like you oh, know they can uh... tons of humor absolutely Absolutely, it's got a sense of humor, and and that's really good, and it's got great performances. And I was, I can't remember the exact line, but to paraphrase, one of my favorite parts of Sid and Nancy is when they're in a phone booth and they're calling Nancy's mom to get money, and they get really mad. I think the phone booth tips over, but anyway, like the, the mom won't give them money, and uh, you know, and Nancy starts whining, and she's like, ah, she said if she gave us money, we'd just use it on drugs. <laughs> and then there's a beat, and Sid goes. Well, we would. 
and they did. Yeah, so I mean, uh, there's, there's still some of that Rebo Man humor and the, the tragic tale of Sid and Nancy. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a must-see. I feel like everybody's seen Repo Man. Like, I, I, am, I am tempted in our overviews of the 80s to always leave our uh, one listener with... Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> leave the listener with some kind of recommendations. And, of course... Repo Man is a sentimental favorite of mine, but I think everybody's seen Repo Man, so I think fewer people have seen Sid and Nancy. I think Sid and Nancy is the one that I would really like to recommend. Yeah, sure. Uh, You should definitely check it out if you've never seen it. I mean, it probably depends on the circles he traveled in. I know it's like a young, aspiring punk alternative music fan it very much became like the word on the show well you gotta watch Sid and Nancy it's a, it's a harsh it's a harsh film yeah. not not easy to swallow it's big the yeah. performance is a huge yeah. huge over the top performance they lived a very big life in a short amount yeah. of time yeah. uh, Sid and Nancy but it's a, it's a great snapshot of the era and, and I know there's like if you actually read you know some of the accounts of the other members of the Sex Pistols they kind of poo poo on it of course Johnny Johnny Rodden sure. poo-poo's everything. Well, there's a question of, uh, I mean, I guess there are people who, you know, sometimes like say Elton John was an executive producer on his own biopic, so presumably he uh, he liked a lot of it. But uh, if you're not involved in your own life story, I, w- I often wonder, Andre, is there any like way that anybody would ever tell your life story that like without your involvement that... I don't know if that there's anybody... That, well, that you could objectively be like, yeah, they did a really great job there. I feel like just anybody would be instantly like, yeah. well, that's not exactly true. And no, that's, oh, I didn't like the way they downplayed that. They should have up, you know. And right, right. So it's always a hard one that whenever I hear about, like, somebody does the life story of somebody and they're like, well, you know, their friend who was there said that's not exactly. It's a load of bullocks. Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course it's a load of bullocks, Johnny. Never mind. Of course it is. Exactly. <laughs> but never mind. Exactly. That's, that's, that's great. That's great, Steve. But, uh, but you know, like my other sentimental favorite from the 80s is this guy, Alan Rudolph, who really did not make a lot of films. Yeah. But the films he did make, and really it's two of them. Uh, one is called The Trouble in Mind, and the other one is called Choose Me. Uh, both uh, star Genevieve Bougeau, a Canadian expat as well, and, uh-huh. uh, and uh, Keith Carradine. Uh, Hollywood expat, apparently. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I love those movies. I don't know why I love them, Steve. They're weird. They're weird movies. They have weird things in them. Some of the some of the some of things in them are sloppy. Uh, some of the dialogue is questionable. Some plot elements are questionable. But there's an element of Alan Rudolph's work that I really love. Like he's a deep romantic. He has a deep love for Hollywood style storytelling so the movies are always beautifully shot and look really cool but you can also tell that they're made on a, on a very thin budget he's also one of those guys who for reasons I don't fully understand creates a kind of a standalone universe for his movies to take place in that's uh-huh. very unusual yeah. like like a trouble in mind literally takes place in a world that's kind of similar to Blade Runner a little bit yeah like people have bizarre hairstyles and weird fashions and there's soldiers patrolling the streets at all times and it's just weird when you look at it overall like like what does that have to do with the plot of the film but it creates a like a like a universe like a little little kind of a playground 
that's really cool. And the fact that he does it on such low budget, I always find that really kind of empowering and yeah. and, and exciting. And I think those both of those two films, Trouble in Mind and Choose Me, both are really, really good movies. And, and they hold up good because they're not... They are of their time, obviously, visually, especially in terms of fashions and stuff like that. But because they are so quirky, and yeah. here's a word that, of course, was literally designed for independent sure. cinema and, and, and alternative cinema, uh, it, this guy is quirky. So I really, really recommend his work uh, to our listeners, and uh, Trouble in Mind is available on HBO. So if you've got HBO in whatever form, you can watch it tonight. It's a great-looking movie. Well, one other guy we want to talk about from uh, who emerged in the 80s and became kind of like a giant of American independent cinema is uh, Gus Van Sant. Yes. Who, uh, you know, Gus Van Sant did a little bit of time in New York, other parts of the country, but he's mostly a Pacific Northwest guy, specifically Portland. And, uh, you know, Gus Van Sant made uh, Maya Noche in like 85, and that was kind of a festival darling hit. And he's one of those guys who Hollywood came calling. Uh, Universal Pictures was talking about it, and he's like, well, what do you got, kid? What do you got your ideas? And he had some ideas about uh, uh, some drug addicts in Portland. That would be right. a movie. And uh, also about, like, uh, some male prostitutes. Like, uh, what do you think, Universal? Do you think these sound like hit movies? <laughs> and uh, Universal's like, uh, no. That I <laughs> but so then Gus Van Sant, rather than being like, I'm going to take the money and, you know, start making more Hollywood things, he decides, like, well, I'll just go back to the independent world then, raise a little bit of money here and there. I can maybe get a little more than I did for Maya Noche. Right, right. And uh, so his second film, which really took off, is uh, one of the great, uh, independent films of the 80s is Drugstore Cowboy. Yes, with, fantastic uh, film. Matt Dillon. That would, if anyone hasn't seen that, you should definitely check it out. I mean, far and away, like Matt Dillon's best performance, right? Definitely and, uh, up there. Definitely, I like, like Matt Dillon, but I mean, but 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 he deserves a lot of credit for being in that film. Yeah, right? I mean, that's yeah. a small budget movie by a, by not a giant filmmaker, and and it's a it's a weird kind of a role. risky role. Yeah, it's a yeah. risky role. But I mean, at that time, you didn't have major like Pretty Boy Hollywood guys. Playing scumbags on that yeah, level. Yeah, no, no, a lot. no. That that became you know it happened a little bit in the tail end of the '90s. But yeah, like if you're a young actor trying to like be the next Tom Cruise or something, you're, you're maybe that's not a role that's jumping out at you. Yeah, but he did yeah. great in it. Yeah, uh, also a great uh, William S. Burroughs. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I mean as, as the junkie priest. Yep. Uh, the first time I ever saw like William S. Burroughs, like heard what he sounded like. You know, like and, uh, fascinating. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. He was quite the screen presence, and of course, Gus, Gus Van Zandt, uh, you know, used him later on as well, right? I, yeah. mean, I think they made a documentary on on, on Burroughs as well. So he kind of brought him into the. Floor, Gus Van Zandt also a little bit of a music guy, like yeah, uh, for more sure. of a not cast less people, but certainly a big fan uh, to the extent of when he got a, you know. I don't know, what would you call the Goodwill hunting job? I mean, is Miramax, does it count as a Hollywood job? Yeah, well, yeah. it's hard to be, I mean, at that time, Miramax was definitely on the rise, so it's hard to view that company, yeah. you know, as anything but mainstream Hollywood, yeah. even though they did, they were an independent production house, yeah. but they, they were just so ingrained into what Hollywood was at that time, because, you know, remember, we're not talking about the 30s or the 50s or the 60s even, when there was still a studio system, quote-unquote. Yeah. This was the 80s, and things were different. There were big studios, and then there were people 
raising money independently who were still working within the big studios, but were still kind of independent. And Miramax was sort of striding that Especially by the late 90s, ground. yeah, they had bigger budgets. But Absolutely. I mean, it's a little bit of an aside, because the point I was trying to make is that when Gus Van Sant pushed to have on the soundtrack of uh, Good Will Hunting, this giant, which became this giant movie, but he pushed to have Elliot Smith, yes. who at the time was this fairly cultish right. Portland singer-songwriter. Like, you know, a lot of people outside of Portland didn't know who he was, never yes. heard of him. Very and, hip uh, tastes in music and, yeah. and always good use of music and soundtracks by Gus Van Sant. Yeah, and so Gus Van Sant, you know, did his own unique, certainly also um, unashamedly gay. Right, which right, is, which uh, is different, which yeah. is definitely a different and posture to take for a filmmaker to ballsy be very in the out 80s, there. Yes. Yeah. No pun intended. Yes, ballsy <laughs> in the 80s, you know, not as ballsy as it would be in the 70s, but nonetheless, but, yes. but definitely, definitely, you know, and, and certainly making films about gay themes. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not just, uh, I mean, there were people, um, what's his name, who did like, Drugstore Cowboy, not Drugstore, uh, Midnight Cowboy. Right, right. I mean, there were... John Schlesinger. Yeah, I mean, certainly... Yeah, there were, there there were gay people, theme movies in the 70s. Well, that and were, then also just working gay people who everybody knew was kind of gay, but then that sure. didn't necessarily mean that the work reflected that. Right, 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 right. Exactly. Yeah, whereas exactly. Gus Van Sant was like, I'm going to make movies about with a lot of gay people. Yeah, he's a, he's a key figure in the gay liberation movement, quote-unquote, sure. in a sense, because he was... He was very uh, out. Yeah. <laughs> he was out, and as soon as he had a chance, he made a movie very much with a gay theme, which was uh, My Own Private Idaho, which yeah, is basically yeah. a gay movie. Yeah. Uh, it's a gay romance. And, sure. and, uh, and he deserves a lot of credit in that regard. My Own Private Idaho is an excellent film, uh, and, of course, again, allowed him to, to get some juicy, juicy Hollywood money. Yeah, well, I mean, Down that's uh, Gus Van Sant's had a very interesting career. If you look at his filmography, I mean, you know, the, supposedly the deal with Goodwill Hunting is that, um, you know, he was requested by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, who, you know, I don't know if they had a list to choose from or whatnot, but they sold this screenplay to Miramax, and they're going to mm-hmm. get to do it, and they're like, well, here's a guy we know who can make young men look pretty, <laughs> and. <they're> like, <laughs> and uh, and also, there's some good acting. But, I mean, yes. seriously, they were like... Although, it's not hard to make, like, River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves. Sure. <laughs> but still, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a similar to, like, you know, when Tony Scott, they're like, we want to make these jets look like... So they sexy. hire this guy who made a sexy car commercial. And they're like, shoot the jets the way you shot the cars. So they're like, we've seen my own private Idaho. These guys look great. <laughs> like, let's, let's get that guy. Right. Seems, you know, he's got a good, you know, he's good with actors and will look perfect. So that'll be yeah. fantastic. So then, you know, Goodwill Hunting was a gigantic hit. I mean, yeah. like, uh, for everybody involved. Oscars all around. And then he what, almost gets lost in the shuffle a little bit with Goodwill Hunting. Do you, yeah. do you get that feeling? Like, like you always hear people talking about the man and Ben. You, yeah. you hear there's a lot of love for Robin Williams in that movie. And then somehow I just feel people like forget Gus directed it. people yeah. forget who directed it. And that's actually a sign of a good director. Yeah. When people remember how much they love the movie, but like, who directed it? Well, it's certainly not somebody who just took over the production and made it something else it wasn't. Well, and I've read books about the aftermath of the whole thing. And uh, it's, you know, 
Gus Van Sant continued to work with Matt Damon on a couple sure. of projects here and there. And Gus Van Sant actually seemed kind of content with his place in the Goodwill hunting credit scheme. Sure. Because he was like, you know, I don't necessarily need to turn into Steven Spielberg overnight. I don't need to people, everybody trumpeting how much it was my doing, not theirs. Right. Uh, he, you know, he's like, I jumped up in status. I was able to get more money on the next movie. And uh, I became kind of an A-list director there for a while. For a little while. So mm-hmm. he's like, that's fine. And what mm-hmm. he chose to do with that, I mean, I think his very next movie, was that the Psycho remake? Yes. And uh, and for anyone, you know, sometimes this gets lost in the shuffle. Gus Van Sant did a shot-for-shot shot remake. Almost shot-for-shot. Shot. Almost shot. There's a couple additional no, shots. No, well, I mean, he threw in a lie. He yeah. threw in some psychedelic shit. Yeah. Some kind of like... But he remade you know. Psycho. Yeah. And uh, and so... It was an experiment. I mean, which I, I have my... But what do you think of Gus Van Sant's Psycho? I think it's watchable. Okay. I think he proved the fact that you could take a movie, duplicate the sequence and the framing of shots one-to-one and still have it be effective as long as you can kind of stop thinking about the old cycle, right? Yeah. And, of course, it's not... You know, it's not a shot. I mean, the performances aren't recreated. The, they're different actors, and different actors are doing their own thing. So Vince Vaughn, who plays the Anthony Perkins role, is not playing Anthony Perkins. He's playing a different Vince Vaughn version of, of the character. Of, yeah, yeah. of the character. Norman Absolutely. Bates. Norman yeah. Bates. And so it's different. It's not like watching the same film, but in color. Uh, but again, it's an experiment. And as an experiment, considering that it's a one-off experiment, it's it's interesting to me as, as somebody who, you know, who studied film as a language. It's interesting to see like a shot-by-shot remake. I mean, in music, you have this shit all the time now. Yeah. People are remaking whole albums cut by cut. So why why shouldn't he do it? I, I people were real offended at well, that. Well, that's and okay. Like, so that's like, my thing is Psycho. Like, if you just want to watch it as a movie, like if you're just like I'm watching it, yeah. I actually think it's not great. Like, I think it it's interesting about I don't know, and it, I haven't gone through and done a breakdown about what's the problem about. Is it just we're used to different pacing or whatnot? But I feel like it just flows a little clunky. It's not all that great as just like a standalone movie. But in terms of like like an art experiment or even just an interesting power move. It's one of my favorite things anybody's ever done. It's <laughs> just ballsy. like a thing. Yeah. I mean, like, imagine you're like, you make, you make a movie and it's the biggest hit of your entire career. You're probably at a point where you're like, okay, what do you want to do next? Like, maybe not anything you want, but like any, you know, that idea you've always had, like, what can I want to do? And Gus Van Sant's like, I want to do kind of an art experiment quasi prank on the world. You know, like, I just want to take this money and do some little experiment that had always fascinated me. And that's just, I'm like, that's crazy. I mean, it's one thing to talk about it, but he actually did it. You know, I did it. To me, it's the metal machine music of cinema. Yeah. yeah, It's like, you know, you can have a wacky idea and he's like, you know what? I'm actually going to make this movie. So the fact that it exists is a triumph. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if he, he knew that he was going to get so much shit as he did. People hate it. I mean, people yeah. hated it with such a was such such a such a vitriol yeah. that I thought like I'm like just fucking relax. <laughs> no, I mean seriously, it's not yeah. like Gus Van Zandt took and destroyed the original negative yeah, exactly. of Psycho. Yeah, Psycho is still Psycho. It's it still, still exists. Yeah. You can watch it. It's still around. You don't. You're not forced to watch his version of it. But if you want to see an interesting experiment, you can watch his version of it too. And yeah. if you don't like it, you can turn it the fuck off. It's fine. 
Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I don't understand what the anger was. But I do understand what my anger was at a film he did down the line called Finding Forrester, which I thought was terrible. Yes. And talk about like a cash grab. I mean, literally, not only is he totally selling out to Hollywood, making this really saccharine, shitty star vehicle, uh, which ended up really being one of the last Sean Connery performances next to League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, and I love Sean Connery, and that movie is shit. Yeah. I hate Finding Forrester. Uh, and I hate everything about it, and it's just an enormous sellout. Like, he not only sells out and does the, the most, like, middle-of-the-road bunch of Hollywood Holcomb, he also, like, copies himself beat for beat in Goodwill Hunting. It's like almost a remake of Goodwill Hunting, Steve, like in so many thematic ways. And that movie actually does offend me. Yeah, it's... I mean, a lot of times when I look at a movie I like that I think is well-directed... Um, I think of, like, the pacing, which, yeah. you know, you can give the editor a lot of credit as well, but then also just, like, the taste. Like, you can tell from the performances, the costumes, the lighting, everything, you know, there are all these really impressive craftspeople who do all these things, but the director's the guy who's kind of like, okay, like, that's a good take, that's a bad take, we can move on. Like, how you put it together. Like, just that they have a feel for the material. And so a lot of times when I watch a movie that I really like, one of the things you come away with that I feel like it's well-directed is you feel like the director made good decisions, you know, like, like the decision to shoot the scene this way, to cut it at this point. Just like, okay, these are good decisions. For this. Like, I like that. And Finding Forrester, I almost wondered if it was another art experiment because I hate all the decisions. All the decisions. I hate, they're all bad. Terrible. So then if you did not know who directed Finding Forrester, there's no way you would watch that movie and be like, this is the same guy who did Drugstore Cowboy and even To Die For and Goodwill Hunting. Like, it's just... The grasp of it, it's so hacky. Like, everything about it is, like... So, there's a part of me that wonders if it's, like, he did an experiment of, like, what if in every instance I I made the bad decision? I made the cliched, terrible... You know, like, this is the bad plot point, this is the bad performance. Everything about it's, like, hokey and... Because I remember watching it, and uh, I think I saw it in a theater, and just being... Like, my jaw dropped at just how terrible it was. I saw it in the theater. I was outraged. Yeah. I, I just, it was, it, was, it was just a terrible piece of and I think we'd like to clarify, if we're talking this movie up, that you're one of those people who go, wow, that sounds fascinatingly bad. It's worse than that because it's just bland. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's like, it's yeah. a bad it's not TV aggressively movie. bad. Yeah, yeah, it's not aggressively bad. No, and it's like, not. A, like, yeah. like, Repo Man is aggressively bad. <laughs> and yeah. it's great. Well, I mean, that. yeah, exactly. No, the only thing memorable about Finding Forrester is that, you're just stunned somehow it's directed by Gus Van Sant. Right, right, <laughs> like, right. Other than that, there's nothing memorable about yeah, it. Yeah, so that to me is a big disappointment of his career, obviously. But, but you know... But then we, after that, he went back to yeah, making almost experimental yeah, movies. Yeah, so yeah. it's just, a, it's a guy who, you know, he came out of the 80s and really always held true to that independent spirit. And, you know, every couple of years, he makes something loosely more commercial, you know, like, it, it at least flows. I mean, you know, he got really into the cinema of, like, Bellatar and these really long, slow things. Mm-hmm, yeah. Which, I mean, you know, he's not an idiot. He knows that thing's not going to light up <laughs> no the box reason, office. Yes. Yeah. So he, he switches it up every now and then. He's like, i got to make a little coin to keep this yeah. thing rolling. But he's still, he's committed to, uh, I mean, in some ways similar to Spike Lee or these other guys. That Gus Van Sant's like, I want to make what I want to make. Everybody. And I will find a way to finance it. But, and I don't 
care necessarily that it's not mainstream. Right. This is what I want to do. I mean, literally everybody we mentioned, with the possible exception of Alan Rudolph, who basically just stopped making movies in the late 90s. Uh, I, I mean, all these guys are still working, are still doing their thing. And uh, to varying degrees of success, but they're doing their things. They're artists. They're viable. And uh, I think we have the '80s to thank for for that. Yeah, yeah. And then of course, you know, I we'll probably be wrapping this up here, but a lot of the American independent cinema, like it, really skyrocketed in the '90s. Right. Like especially the early '90s. Um, there was a few years there where people were convinced that if I can just put together, you know. If I can blow out four credit cards and get together a couple friends and a funny script, then I might win the Sundance Film Festival. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are some examples that that happened. Yeah. But so the 80s really laid the groundwork for that. Yeah, yeah. And that's, it, it uh, paved the way for your Tarantinos. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, other great independent filmmakers we have now, like Sofia Coppola and stuff like that. I mean, like anybody you could think of who was part of the boom the, the independent cinema boom in the 90s have the 80s and the guys that we just mentioned to thank for it. So yeah, yeah those are the guys who paved the way for them. Yeah. Needs to be checked out. Uh, so, yeah, 80s, great, great period for independent film, as it yeah. turns out. Well, that's all I got, Steve. That's all I got, too. It seems like a good place to wrap it up. Absolutely. I'm Andre Shane. I'm Steve Haskin. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.